Welcome to the Yes Collective podcast. If you're hearing this, then you are not on our private members-only podcast feed where we have our public episodes like this one, but tons more amazing mental wellness content, including our therapist circles, on-the-go articles, parent-focused meditations, and special episodes you won't want to miss. So head on over to yescollective.co, become a supporting member, and we'll get you your own private podcast feed today. This month's theme in the Yes Collective is emotional trauma, and we're kicking everything off with our interview with Ruthie Duran Defley. She's the founder of Healthy Mind Mente Sana and a licensed clinical social worker and therapist in Savannah, Georgia, who specializes in trauma recovery. She grew up in Mexico City, earned degrees from Georgetown University and the University of Minnesota. She's also a certified facilitator of trauma-sensitive yoga. We talked about Ruthie's winding path into the field of mental health, her own recovery, how she uses trauma-informed yoga and other modalities to help people recover from trauma, and how parents can take a trauma-informed approach to parenting and their own well-being. So without further ado, here is our interview with the wonderful Ruthie Duran Defley. We are so grateful to have you, Ruthie, on to explore our Yes Collective theme of the month, healing from emotional trauma. So before I even begin, I just want to thank you for coming on and making time in your busy schedule. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And thanks for inviting me. This is a great opportunity of talking about mental health. (laughs) Awesome. So before diving into the topic of trauma, this is a big one. Uh, first, I'd love to know what led you into the field of mental health in the first place. My uh, trajectory into uh, uh, academics or professionalism did not start out with mental health. I was not aware that that's what I wanted to do. I uh, was heavily influenced by my parents, specifically my dad, who was a political science major and loves everything international. And I intentionally or unintentionally really got swept up into his uh, desires. And being the firstborn and the type A kind of child, I wanted to please my parents. And uh, so I really got heavily involved in Model UN and did a lot of work in, uh, in school around you know, different countries and foreign affairs and ended up applying to Georgetown's School of Foreign Service, uh, which is really a feeder school for the State Department. So the trajectory for you from like high school into your undergrad was to work in diplomacy to be like a diplomat, essentially. Yes, of the United States, which is funny because I grew up in Mexico City. My mom is Mexican, and so I'm a part of a biracial couple. But um, so I'd never lived in the States. I visited the States a lot and I specifically Minnesota. So if you hear a Minnesotan accent, it's because my 
first foray into English was Minnesota English. <laughs> that that classic <laughs> Mexico City, Minnesota <laughs> connection. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very unique, but people get really confused. Like, why is a Latina speaking? In um, a yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Lake Wobegon yeah, so, and yes. uh, Mexico City. Don't you know? Yeah. Don't you know? <laughs> um, but yeah. And, and and so I I never lived in the States, but I was you know going to be conditioned to, to represent the United States internationally. So I get to Georgetown my first time living in the U.S. and I have a horrible culture shock. And uh, really didn't understand a lot of the culture nuances that a lot of my peers had grown up with. Mm. And, but because I spoke English so well, I, I passed. And so that was highly uh, difficult for me during this time at, at the university. And I should have sought out mental health services for myself at that time. And I did not. So I okay. I have a quick question. Do you have a story of this kind of cultural mismatch that you felt? Is there a story where you know, like, so the the Princess Bride? Do you know the Princess Bride? Yeah, of movie? course, classic. Yeah. Well, I didn't know it. <laughs> and so yes, all yes. my peers like loved the Princess Bride, and I'm oh. like, what is this? But watching it as an 18-year-old does not have the same impact on no, you. No, you're just like, child. it's okay. Yeah. But like, when you watch so it as dumb. a child, oh my God. Oh, it oh, you even thought it was dumb. Wow. Yeah, that like <laughs> that that hits hard for me, Ruthie, because I, I was one of those kids who I watched it when it first came out as a kid. We I think we had it on VHS and I just watched it over and over again. Over and over. Yes, and then all the, all the lines. All the lines. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> and so that's how I would, I wouldn't click. So if you were a hundred percent American, I just was like, this is so dumb. Or the other one was keg parties, like drinking beer out of a keg. Yeah. I grew up oh. in Mexico city where we went to like clubs, you know, when we were 15, 16 and it was like strobe lights and DJs. And, and so now you're going to tell me you're going to just drink out of a keg at a, house. You know? <laughs> right, this is so low rent. What are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. So so then I didn't want I didn't participate in that either. So there was just all these mismatches oh, that I yes. um yes that makes sense. But I so, sense. I so I really gravitated towards there was a nice Latino um you know Latin American students contingency and some Puerto Rican students. And so I really gravitated towards people who came from different countries. Um, specifically Latin America, but it, it was rough because I thought I was American because my dad's American yeah. and, you know, so I, and I spoke English, but that's when you really notice like, oh no, I'm not this kind of American. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was hard. It was hard. And, and my grandfather passed when I was a freshman and it was the oh. first death I'd ever experienced. And so grief, you know, is, is really hard and we don't talk about it really well in our culture. And um, I, I didn't know how to grieve him without being there, without being with my family. Mm. And looking back now, you know, I self-diagnosed myself, but I think, you know, I was majorly depressed, at least uh, those first two years at, yeah. at Georgetown, I was really depressed. And oh. so, um, yeah, and, and not knowing that I needed to 
probably get help because mental health wasn't talked about in our family. You know, you prayed away the depression. It was a very um, religious home. Yes. And so I identify I, uh, my dad uh, was a Baptist pastor until I was in in second grade. And so I totally identify, right. Like uh, pray it away or yeah, you know, it, it, or just ignore it. Just, (laughs) just avoid it. Right. Well, because if if it's not getting better, you're not praying hard enough, Mm. right. There's Mm. something wrong with you, Mm. right? Like what sin are you holding on to? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And so I had to do a lot of uh, my own work around, you know, just uh, unhealthy religious doctrine. So I'm curious in, uh, so undergrad, was there a point at which you realized that going into the foreign service was not your path or was it a when gradual I, I, thing? Well, no, there was a, I, I was an AmeriCorps volunteer. I did AmeriCorps. And what we were doing was we were helping uh, elementary school children learn how to read and be at grade level. And when I saw the disparity between some of these neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., predominantly African-American, low-income, single-parent households, living really in, in complete poverty, and then a few blocks away is Congress, you know, yeah. the Capitol, yeah. the White House, and it's predominantly affluent white men. And that disparity, I couldn't wrap my mind around how I could represent this country internationally when we had a war zone in our inner city. And there's children who aren't reading at grade level, multiple grades behind, and mom has to work two, three jobs to support because there's no father. Families are broken and we're going to go and I'm going to go represent the U.S. internationally. It just, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah, so did this feel like a big shift for you at one point in time or was it stretched out over a a longer period of time? Well, I I did the the volunteering for a year and, uh, and then my senior year, I was an RA resident assistant for freshmen and really enjoyed that experience in kind of helping first year students in the way that I wish I would have been helped as a first year student and kind of been there for them. And I learned more about Georgetown and more about some of the beliefs at Georgetown. It's really pro-social justice, right? So one of the things that people don't realize is that it's run by Jesuits. And the Jesuits, part of the Catholic Church, are very uh, pro-education and pro-social justice. And that really informed, it was a new frame for me to really be focused on the social justice aspect of things. And so I walked out of Georgetown thinking, I'm not taking the foreign service exam. This is not for me. Um, there's too too much need in the United States. Yeah. And I, I just felt that I needed to, to make a difference here. And knowing that I was bilingual, like that, that could be really helpful yeah. for me to yeah. really speak Spanish and English and here in, in the United States. So I, I, I chose not to take the foreign service exam upon graduation. And I ended up moving to San Francisco where my sister was living. Okay. So now the next step is for you to uh, 
start to think about how you can be of service and was uh-huh. then mental health the it was it was it an obvious move for you to go into mental health after that the obvious move was not mental health i was really looking for bilingual opportunities mind you this is early 2000s so 911 hasn't happened yet so it's oh. the early 2000s yeah. and um and so economy is still strong and I'm just trying to figure out, I'm 22 years old, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I'm living in San Francisco and I've never experienced a city like San Francisco and the freedom of San Francisco. So this is also where you know, I feel like I had my cultural uh, awakening and just experienced, you know, my early 20s, as I think most people should experience their early 20s. I started yeah. to have a lot of fun. That's right. I started working at a for-profit, it was a marketing agency downtown uh, as a temp. And I started doing that and I had another part-time job and then started looking for something that really would utilize my bilingual skills. And I was so fortunate to find an opportunity with the University of California, San Francisco's uh, Department of Psychiatry and Psychology. They were opening a trauma recovery center. And it was uh, in the, the, the program, the study was to look at offering support services to victims of crime. Mm. And the crimes that they were looking at were interpersonal violence, so like stabbings or shootings, sexual assault, and domestic violence. And they were going to recruit people at entry points, so either the emergency room or hospital, and randomize them to either usual care in which you received no support services as soon as you left the hospital, other than the list of you can contact these phone numbers, or you got services at the Trauma Recovery Center where they had social workers, nurse practitioners, psychologists, yeah. and they would follow up with you. And the, the premise is that when we experience trauma, right, violent crime, that even though our physical wounds heal, our mental wounds do not. And there was all this data to support that. And that is where I got my... Uh, foray into, into real trauma and the impacts of trauma. And I was uh, hired to be one of their bilingual, well, their only bilingual interviewer. And so I started going into wow. homeless encampments, emergency rooms, single room occupancy uh, apartments, uh, methadone clinics, trying to find uh, our, our, our clients because we would get them at intake and then we had to follow up with them at six, nine and 12 months with interviews. So it was very intensive because a lot of these individuals were marginally housed or homeless. And so we had to figure out where they were going to be in six months, nine months and 12 months. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I want to find a way to come back to this, but I think this is a perfect segue into the definition of trauma. So you're you are, I mean, your first exposure to like the mental health uh, uh, professional world is in a trauma center. So now you have had all this experience to, you know, up to today. How do you define trauma today? I take from uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, and Gabor Mate, who is a Hungarian-Canadian doctor and psychologist. Um, And their definition of trauma really informs uh, that trauma isn't 
what happened, what what happened to you, but rather what happened inside of you as mm-hmm. a result of the event. Yeah. And it is an overwhelming of the nervous system that that alters the way we process memories and information. Yeah, so it's not what happened to you, it's what happened or what happens inside of you. And yes, and so and and then what makes it trauma or one of the main features of trauma that you want to draw out is that it it affects the way that we process memory and then also there's another component here that you mentioned. So it's not just memory, but then how we are responding to present. The world, the, the, yeah, the world, the world around us. Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, almost like a rewiring of the brain as a result of it. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, a, and a change in our nervous system. And that is why when, you know, we are experiencing things that are similar but not the same to what happened to us, the trauma response in us is triggered, right? And what's the trauma response? Fight, flight, flee, or fawn. And so once we're entered into that trauma response, we also now call it the the stress response. So stress can elicit the same trauma response. We we go back to that. I'm going to either fight, flee, uh, freeze, or fawn. So in everyday language, would we also call this being triggered? Yeah. So so the, the trauma is triggered. And many times we are not even consciously aware of it because we also know that trauma is stored in our bodies at a cellular level, right? And so that is why we can have these responses that we don't have, it bypasses our cognitive abilities. And we're simply just responding physically to, to the trigger. So... Trauma is not what happens to us. It's what happens inside of us. It affects the way we remember things. It affects our memory. It also affects the way we are responding to the world after once we've experienced this internal trauma. What makes the difference for a person? Two people might experience the same really big event. And one Mm -hmm. person leaves with this new internal landscape that we we would call emotional trauma and the other person doesn't in your view what is the difference mm-hmm. i mean what 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 is happening there because it, the same yeah. event will will affect people differently right and and i think a lot of the research points to uh adverse childhood experiences so the ace score was developed to measure you know the impact of these uh, these negative events, these traumatic events that happened to us in childhood, so 12 and under. And the more adverse childhood experiences you have, the higher the increase, the rate in uh, a lot of psychological issues like depression, anxiety, personality disorders, addiction, um, but also physical issues, right? Like obesity, uh, you might start smoking, heart heart disease, right? And so to respond specifically to your question, so say these two individuals, one has an ACE score of one and the other one has an ACE score of six. Well, I would predict that the one with a higher ACE score is going to be more traumatized by the event than the one with an ACE score of one because it speaks to our neural networks and how much trauma is it there to attach to? Oh, yeah. So how much 
emotional trauma a person is bringing into a situation because those ACE scores are really a way of saying like, how much trauma does this person have coming in? Right. And so then when they're exposed to a new overwhelming event, they're more likely to experience that as. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause I, I know, you know, this feels familiar like this. And so now I'm going to respond in my, my trauma response, right. Versus someone with a lower ACE score also tends to be a more resilient individual, right? Because they uh, have not been exposed to this really heightened nervous system, which we know that in childhood, and that is why it's so critical that our society really protect our parents with small children from, from conception to, you know, that five age range. Like that is such a critical time of development for the brain and the nervous system. But the the brain of a child that has been traumatized is is different is wired differently than the brain of a child who has not yeah. right they're going to see threat in everything versus a child that yeah. has not right. had that experience they're going to experience curiosity mm-hmm. we see that right traumatized children they are not curious children wow wow so it's the stuff that we're bringing in before. And then there's one other component that I want to ask about. So there's two individuals, they both are experiencing some big event. Uh, one, one person leaves, quote unquote, traumatized, the other person doesn't. What role of social support or support from a person's network, what, what role does that play in whether or not a person leaves an event traumatized? So if during the traumatized event, one of the individuals was able to run away or to move, that person is going to be less traumatized than a person who was trapped, mm, right? Okay. So a feeling and of they, they rec- Yes. They, rec- they did a study with people from 9-11 and they, rec- and they realized that people that were able to run away from the Twin Towers experienced less symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, than those who ha- were frozen or trapped either by debris or because they couldn't move or because of their car or whatever, but that they couldn't flee. So there's this flooding of the nervous system and you're not able to release it in fleeing and, and moving. And that is why, for example, when someone is assaulted, if they're able to fight back, their symptoms of PTSD are less than those who have, are not, have not been able to fight back. Yes. And so this is that somatic or body component to trauma and healing from trauma that I know we're going to talk about because of your yoga So that's important to recognize, right? So you're able to move, right? So if you're able to move, less trauma sits in. Then the second piece too is if you have a support system where you can process or share or talk about what just happened to you, we know that's also going to reduce your level of potentially developing post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or other traumatic um, symptoms. And so um, so to, to speak to your network, if you have a network where you feel safe and you can share, hey, Justin, this happened to me. I almost got hit by a car. Or I was in a horrible car accident. And somebody died and I feel so sad and so overwhelmed. That process itself is healing. Yeah, yeah. I lo- yeah, I love it. So um, I'm imagining this somatic or uh in so i just want to define when we talk about somatic we're talking about the body so this yes. somatic component to trauma and the social component i'm imagining mixing these together and 
trauma-informed yoga becomes like this beautiful way to um, to heal because we're using the body, we're doing it in a group. Uh, so I'm so I want to move into this real quick. How did you first become interested in trauma-informed yoga? So I am a practitioner of yoga on my own. I think yoga is a very healing, uh, nurturing practice that allows you to connect to your body in an intentional way. I have some really amazing yoga instructors. I did prenatal yoga with my firstborn in Minneapolis. They have this sweet little studio called Bluma that focuses on pre and postnatal yoga. And and being someone who's in recovery from an eating disorder that almost took me out (laughs) in my 20s, reconnecting with my body was really, really important. And, uh, and being pregnant was a, a change in my body that could have been really disruptive. But thankfully, I had this community. I had a, a great therapist, I had a great nutritionist, and I had this lovely community of yoga practitioners. So kind of dating back to, to that time, really recognizing that yoga helped me you know, send a love note to my baby is what we would be encouraged to do mm-hmm. during the practice. And really be in my body and okay with my body and really be in the moment. And so kind of it helped me process some of my own trauma in my body, right? Because when we have an eating disorder, we're very disconnected from our body. We feel a lot of shame about our bodies. We don't listen to our bodies. We ignore hunger cues or thirst cues. And so there, there was a big disconnection. And yoga was one of those things that helped me reconnect to my body. And then just started reading up on Dave, David Emerson is really the, the person who founded the trauma-sensitive yoga program up in Massachusetts. And Jen Turner is the co-founder of TSY, Trauma-Sensitive Yoga. And he has a couple books out. And I started looking at his first book and realized that there was this program that I could apply to. And it would be virtual because of COVID. And recognizing that my work in trauma as a provider, now you know, being in mental health, we, t- we talk about top-down and bottom-up therapy or, or techniques and a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy, as helpful as they are with all the different tools, um, they, they really are top-down. And so you really want a, a mind or a nervous system that isn't at a very heightened stage to learn all these tools. Well, someone that's very traumatized, you know, that, that part isn't fully available. And so you can be teaching them CBT or DBT and they're not holding on to what they're supposed to be learning. Yeah. So real quick, when you say top down, what, uh, what I'm imagining is kind of an executive function. Like, you know, we've got, the like executive part of our brain saying, okay, here are the things we need to remember and here are the skills and these are the things we need to practice. And so that's what you're talking about when you're talking about top down. Yes. Yes. Yep. So, and, and then bottom up is really the bottom part of our brain that, you know, really deals with uh, memory and the more basic things that have happened to us, you know, where some of that almost pre-verbal trauma can be stored as well. Yeah, uh, emotions, the body. the body, memory, yeah, yeah. Yes. And so recognizing I'm, I'm, I wasn't getting to that. And so knowing 
that trauma-sensitive yoga really helps from the bottom up. Another process that helps with that is EMDR. So eye movement desensitization and reprocessing technique um, by Francine Shapiro, which I also am trained in and use as a trauma treatment technique. But that's what really got me interested in, in taking the class and kind of combining my own personal experience with yoga and healing in my own body and wanting to provide my clients with the most excellent trauma treatment techniques that I know are out there. Beautiful. So I'm curious, what does what does trauma-informed yoga look like? I've been to yoga classes. I haven't I haven't been in a while and I need to I need to get back into it, but I've been to yoga classes. So what would I expect from trauma-informed yoga that's different from just regular yoga? Great question. Um, so, so trauma-sensitive yoga is not your typical vinyasa flow yoga session, right? And so people that are expecting a workout or will probably not get that in a trauma-sensitive yoga class. Part of it is because when we're in those really hardcore vinyasas or those flows, it can generate a dissociative state, oh, right? Yeah, because we're going from one and that is the opposite of what trauma-sensitive yoga is trying to accomplish, right? And trauma-sensitive so, yoga. Oh yeah, I'm so I'm so sorry. So just for listeners who might be like, what does she mean by dissociative state? So how how might a more intense uh, normal yoga um, experience cause this dissociative state? And well, first, what what is a dissociative state? Yes. And, and so dissociative state is anytime we're not connected to our body and we're really in our heads and we're thinking about a future that hasn't happened or a past that is over or the multiverse, right? Like it's not real, but we're, we're, we're living up here is what I say, right? We're just in our head. And so we're no longer feeling it in our body. And so dis, dissociate, we all dissociate as a coping mechanism, as a tool. And so there's nothing maladaptive or pathological about being in a dissociative state. There is dissociative identity disorder, which, you know, some people may Something have, but that is yeah. very yes. different. Yes. And so we all dissociate at certain, we can call it daydreaming too, or checking out, right? Like there's a lot of collo um, what colloquialisms that we refer to dissociative state. But in yoga, what I specifically am referring to is sometimes uh, the instructors will get us to to just repeat a flow and we and quicker and sometimes they pick up the speed and you're just focusing on you know as a warrior one and then going into warrior two and then a back bend and then do you know go down on down dog and it's all very quick and it feels like you're flowing but at the same time you're no longer checking in with your body because you're moving to so quickly, or you're trying to get into these postures that might be a little challenging. There's more of a focus on postures as well. And so it that can create sense. that dissociative sense. That makes sense. All right. So uh, that is, that describes kind of a typical yoga experience. And so then what happens in trauma-informed yoga? So in a trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive yoga class, you would not be doing really rapid flows. All the movement is uh, is more deliberate. There's a use of invitational language. And so the language of inviting someone to participate 
allows the participant to always retain power because that's really an important concept, right? Because when we've been traumatized, we our power has been taken from us. And so in trauma-sensitive yoga, you always want to feel like you're in control. You decide. And so all instruction is given as a invitation. It's all optional. So you may want to stretch your arm upward or you may not. But if you do stretch it upward, you may notice some sensations in your arm, but you may not. And you may want to make it a dynamic movement, but you may not. You may want to keep it up here or you may want to keep your arm down by your side. I'm imagining that in a trauma-informed yoga session, it's not just the physical sensation that you might not, you may, you may or may not want to do, but it's also what's coming up emotionally that you may or may not want to be in contact with. And so this I'm imagining well, is an important part of it. Yeah. Well, we never make reference to any emotional states because an emotion is not, uh, is, is not. So what is an emotion? An emotion is just a sensation or multiple sensations that we've labeled, right? Mm-hmm. Like what is sadness? Well, sadness feels like I feel like I want to cry, like there are my eyes are prickling, I feel heaviness in my chest. Yeah. So that is sadness, right? And we all experience sadness differently. Maybe some people experience sadness by accelerated heart rate, or they don't have the prickling behind their eyes, right? But but so we don't want to name a sensa- a feeling, but we we invite people to notice sensations yes. in their body. So I'm just imagining that this invitational language, I mean, it, it just, it it feels really good to me to think about, okay, you know, lifting my my arm, do I, do I want to, or do I not want to? But then also maybe the heaviness I'm feeling in my chest from this, maybe I want to get closer or further away from this. And I imagine that in uh, trauma-informed yoga, that that's what this invitational l- language allows participants to, to do. Right. And, you know, you can stop, you can stop at any time, right? You can get down on your mat anytime. Um, we, we really don't draw a lot of attention to the breathing either, right? So in a lot of typical yoga classes, there's a lot of intention to your breath and, and pairing breath to movement. That's a big one, like pairing your breath to movement. But in trauma sense of yoga, you know, sometimes we may say, and you may want to notice your breath or you may not, but knowing that the breath can be a trigger itself. Um, and so we we don't want people who have difficulty breathing or maybe have a history of panic attacks. And so the breath is a triggering element. We don't want to bring a lot of attention to the breath. And so it is only as a side where a facilitator may say, and you may want to notice your breathing. We don't say breathe in and out through your nose or breathe in and out through your mouth. It's really what is going to work best for you in terms of you know best how to breathe. The difference, yeah, that I'm hearing so far, it's slower. There's this invitational language. The focus is not so much on the postures, not on the breathing. So then how would you describe the focus then? The goal of trauma-sensitive yoga is to invite people to reconnect with their bodies. And so if you think of someone who's experienced trauma, their body has betrayed them. Their body has not kept them safe. And so there's a reason why we don't want to check in with our bodies, right? Another thing is if you experience, you know, complex trauma, which we know is chronic trauma, it's interpersonal trauma, um, you need to be facing outward, right? Like, I don't know who's going to walk through that door today, so I better be ready, right? Is it going to be 
drunk dad or sober dad? Or is it going to be nice mom or mean mom? Or is it going to be kind parent or unkind parent? Right. And so our nervous system is out here. I'm not checking in with myself. I don't know if I'm hungry. I don't know if I'm thirsty. I don't know if my shoes are too small and my, they don't fit my feet. All I know is that I have to be ready for whatever walks through that door. And so in trauma-sensitive yoga, what we're trying to do is help people leave this part and reconnect with their body at a pace that feels comfortable for them and feels safe for them and allows them to stop at any time because it's, it, it has become too much. And so I, I, what popped into my head was how, um, how, you know, this is, this is now decades old, but there used to be approaches to trauma, to uh, confronting trauma in a more, you know, straightforward way. And, and, and so I'm curious, what are the problems then with confronting asking or any methods that, that might push a person to uh, confront their trauma or to go faster than their system is ready to go. What are the problems with, with, with that? Well, I, you, what you would see is maybe like a total collapse of the nervous system. And that is, and you're, you're, and again, part of the, the framework of treating trauma. So Judith Herman is a pioneer in trauma treatment and one of the things that she really talks about is no intervention that takes the power away from the individual can be, can be effective, can be helpful. Um, because that person, and it doesn't matter how benign it might seem, right? That person who's been needs to maintain control. And so if you're doing exposure, exposure therapy, which is what you're talking about, um, there's a loss of control again, even, even if they've maybe agreed to that type of treatment, you're still, you know, forcing them because they don't want to confront their trauma that way. Um, and so they've, they've lost control again. And so we're, we're not providing them with what they need in terms of like, you need to feel like you're in control of your body again, you need to feel like you're in control. And so trauma sensitive yoga really is always inviting you to check in with yourself and to make choices, choices that are aligned with what you want, with what you need, right? And so that is really what you would be doing in, in the classes is you would be inviting them to check in with their body, to move at a pace that is uh, accessible to them. It's also, you know, very flat, you know, in, in yoga classes, traditional yoga classes, it's the teacher and the students. Right. And trauma sensitive yoga, it's the facilitator and the participants. And so it's a more, it's a flat mm. or, organization. Like, I'm going to facilitate this class, but y'all know best what you yeah. need in your body. Yeah. And don't worry about how to get, and we don't really name poses like warrior or down dog. We just say you might want to get on your hands and knees or you might want to separate your legs. Right. We're very, we name the body parts. We don't say get in touch with your heart center. Like, what does that even mean, right? And so we don't use that language. We're just very direct and we name things as they are. And we allow people to choose whether they want to move in that way or not. Uh, classrooms are set up with the facilitator as part of the group, not really leading at the very front. You know, we're all kind of integrated together. There's an invitation to keep eyes open 
uh, because again, closing eyes can invite dissociation. There's no long savasana at the end, because if you think about a traumatized mind, that is probably the hardest part of the class. And what do teachers always say about savasana? They say, this is the best part. You know, you work so hard to lay here (laughs) and stay in this part. It's so restorative. How how much shame would you feel when you think like this is the worst part for me and I can I, okay. I want to get up and that makes total sense. Are are there levels or is this the type of uh is trauma informed yoga the type of practice where after some point a person will know when that point is for them they will be ready just to do normal yoga or uh, because. Um, I know so many people who are like, oh yeah, I love that meditative time at the end, or I want to get the reminder to connect in with my heart center, or I love the breathing, all those, those, those things. So are there levels to this or is this just like trauma-informed yoga? Once you're feeling a certain level of resource and healing, you can just go do normal yoga. Well, and and what is normal yoga, right? Like we, we, <laughs> I know I don't know what I'm talking about here because I haven't done yoga in a long time. <laughs> but I mean, if if we think about you know the yoga that they were practicing in India and the way we've westernized it in America, it's super different and it's very commercialized here. Yeah. Yeah. And and so th- there's a certain so I dis- guess what I yeah, in that yeah, sense. I, I guess what I'm talking about is the normal yoga <laughs> where there's breathing, focus, you know, and all the different poses, and then the meditation at the end. Um, so yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> I, I I mean, I wouldn't say your ability to sit to take one of those classes as the benchmark of recovery. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I think that um, those those classes are there and they're helpful for a certain population, but you may never be comfortable in a, in those settings. Um, and that would be OK. It doesn't mean that you're still traumatized. Oh, I know. He, say more people, about but, that. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the benchmarks of someone who's recovering from from a traumatic events is the ability to 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 check in with self and answer the question, what do I need right now? What do I need? Because people that are traumatized don't know what they need. Yeah, yeah. And and that's where mindful self-compassion kicks in. Um, you asked about other tools that I use to treat trauma. So there's trauma-sensitive yoga, there's EMDR. And then Kristen Neff and Christopher uh, Germer uh, came up with mindfulness self-compassion. And that is the ability to turn towards self in the present moment with compassion. Mm-hmm. That is a fundamental piece in all of this work because we are so judgmental of self. We are so critical of self and because of conditioning, because of what we were told as children, that concept of I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Yeah. And, and so that is trauma, right. And, and, and so carrying that into uh, a, a space of recovery and being able to turn towards self and say, this moment is hard but I'm doing the best I can. And how beautiful would it be if all our parents talked to themselves like that, right? Like oh it's gosh. really hard to be a parent, oh. but I'm doing the best I can. Absolutely. I'm curious, how do you or do you weave in self-compassion practices into trauma-informed yoga? Do those do those things come together? Yes, all the time, right? So I might use a little bit of trauma-sensitive yoga 
at the beginning of a session because I'm noticing someone come in with a very anxious uh, affect, right? And so I say, well, let's just do, and I don't call it trauma-sensitive yoga. I just say, let's do some body movement, body movement. Uh, exercises or a body scan. You know, people are more familiar with the body scan. And, and then allowing them to say, you know, you can or cannot, may or may not want to use your breath, but you can check in with your breath, right? If you want to right now, you may or may not want to close your eyes, but you can close your eyes if that's going to feel better for you. So even there and how I set it up, it's all, it's all invitational um, language so that they can make choices. The mindfulness self-compassion piece, there is actually a workbook out there called the mindfulness self-compassion workbook. I have my clients purchase that. Um, it's maybe $20 on Amazon. And uh, we work through that because there's a lot of, again, it's a practice. So just like yoga is a practice, mindfulness, self-compassion is a practice. And the more we practice it, the more natural it will become because we are really hardwired to be judgmental and critical of self. That's what we're modeled. That's what we see in society. Like if you're too kind to yourself, you're weak. Like all this um, stigma around kindness to self. Beautiful. So I'm curious your perspective on trauma from your 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 very first experience in San Francisco all the way up to now. How has your view of trauma changed? I think the main thing is, or two things really, um, the the impact that adverse childhood experiences have on how we respond to trauma as adults and. I, I didn't fully understand that going into it, um, but recognizing that based on what our childhood was like, that's really going to inform how we respond to being assaulted in adulthood or, or, or witnessing a horrible car accident or witnessing somebody die. And that in treating that incident, you're also treating everything else, right? Mm. So you can't just say, well, we're just going to treat this one yeah. piece. Yeah, But we really have to look at all of it and how is it latching onto that whole neural network around safety, right? Because when we are, have been traumatized, like our schema of safety shifts. And so how can we now address that or, um, or, or look at that? So that's one piece. And the other piece is um, really about the top-down and bottom-up approach. You know, I, I came out of a school, you know, two words like dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, solution-focused therapy, um, motivational interviewing, all those good tools. But I was not given the tools of bottom-up. And so I had to learn EMDR on my own. I had to learn trauma-sensitive yoga on my own. I got a trauma certificate um, a seven-month-long trauma certificate for studies on my own, which all the um, presenters were talking about, like the polyvagal theory. And Bessel van der Kolk was talking about, you know, storing trauma at a cellular level. All that was not given to me in my graduate work. So I, I've had to seek that out on my own. Yeah. So you now have this like deep appreciation for how child adverse childhood experiences or childhood trauma uh, affects how we experience events uh, throughout our lives. And then this new appreciation for bottom-up approaches in addition to the top-down approaches. And so now I'm curious about how this has informed your parenting. Like, mm. I can imagine just so many different avenues here, but yeah, what what comes up for you when you think about your own parenting in this context? 
Yeah, I have become or I am in the process of becoming a parent that is a lot more comfortable with ambiguity and a little bit of chaos, but allowing my children to have agency and make their choices and then experience the consequences of those choices in their body. And I, I can tell you, I, I already I parent my five-year-old different than I parented my 12-year-old when he was five, right? I give her a lot more space now to make choices. And it's also informed how I respond to those choices. You know, I am someone who's very high on the anxiety spectrum. And I've had to do a lot of work on myself to, 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 to calm my, my anxious responses. I also did some EMDR between my two children, and that really hit on this perfectionist need for perfection. And so I parent my five-year-old without that lens of perfection. So now when she spills her oat milk, like she did this morning all over the dining room table, I'm like, okay, well, we're just going to have to clean it up, aren't we? Versus I know that with my son, I was like, what? Why did you spill? And why aren't you more careful? And so I, you know, need to make amends to him for the rest of my life. But, um, but my daughter, her nervous system is a lot more. I can already tell, like, her nervous system is a lot more relaxed than my son's. And, um, you know, as parents, we do the best we can. Well, we do the best. And we can. you know, yeah. trying to let go of that blame. But, but I, I, I've noticed that evolution in myself as a parent. I do not react as strongly as anxiously. And I really allow my kids to feel agency and autonomy in their bodies to the best of our ability, you know, with a son moving into adolescence now, just knowing that I need to provide him that big safe container. And within that safe container, he's going to have all of the experiences. Um, so I, I, I've really adjusted my parenting according, according to that. I'm curious. One of the things that I'm hearing is, you doing your own work, even in between the five and the 12, like even in between having the first child and the second work. And so I'm imagining a parent listening to this and thinking, I might have some trauma in my own childhood and in my own life that is unresolved. And I'm not sure how to... uh, what what first steps to take, of course, finding a an excellent trauma-informed therapist would be ideal. But what might be a first step even before that that you could recommend for parents? The first step is to turn towards self with kindness, right? If you're recognizing that some of your behaviors, some of your reactions, maybe as a result of trauma, uh, to kind of hold that space for yourself and, you know, and be kind to yourself because that right there is going to be a different stance than most parents are taking. Um, and recognizing that a lot of the things that may have happened to you were outside of your control and that it is not your fault, right? It is not your fault that you may have a maladaptive behavior that you can't let go of. It's not your fault that you react partially to your child, because that's what was modeled to you in your household. Um, You know, children of workaholic parents, that they experience symptoms similar to those of children who are fully neglected, because it's really about the emotional availability of a parent, not whether or not they're physically in the same space as you. 
And given how our society is structured, most parents are stressed out. And so they are not fully emotionally available for that healthy, secure attachment. And so recognizing that we are operating in a society where the cards are stacked against us all the time to begin with. And that that once we start to see it that way, that we can create that space and, and it's okay, right? It's okay to not do all the things and to take care of yourself. Prioritize yourself and try to answer that question. What do I need as a result of this awareness? Like, what would I need? Mm-hmm. What do I need? Do I need to cut some stuff out in my schedule? Do I need to set some firmer boundaries with some toxic relationships? Do I need to uh, start taking better care of my physical health? Do I need to figure out how to let go of that maladaptive behavior that's not serving me right now? Beautiful. And so the final regular question that we have is what is a new challenging thing that you're working on in your own personal growth, in your own personal development right now? So one of the things that I am really excited about, um, so I'm in recovery from both an eating disorder and uh, alcohol use disorder. And so for me being, you know, balanced and to have every day I have to choose me and to choose to take care of me. And uh, I I tried the 12-step AA model for um, alcohol for a couple of years, and it was great for what I needed but I kind of outgrew that program. And so there's another program out there for people that may not be aware of it, but it's called SMART, SMART Recovery. And so that's it's an acronym that stands for Self-Management and Recovery uh, Training. And it's another support group for people that have any kind of process addiction. So not just alcohol or substances, but anything that we're using to numb out and check out and is causing us harm, like compulsive. Shopping, gambling, pornography, sex, <laughs> social media, social media. Yes. Yeah. You know, anything that's going to disconnect us from our pain yeah. that we don't want to feel yeah. and it's causing us harm. Right. So, yeah. so that's what smart is for. And up until now, we did not have a smart meeting in Savannah, but I've gotten some other people together and we are launching a smart meeting on September 12th. Okay. And right. um, I am super excited about that because it's been a, a work in progress. We were going to launch it right before COVID. And then COVID hit in March of 2020. And we did not want to be online because there's already a lot of smart online and all this stuff. And I'm very thematic. Like, right, I need to be in the same room as the people I'm with we decided to postpone until it was safer to start in person. And so now we feel like, okay, we're here. I think everybody I know has had COVID at least once. (laughs) And so we're starting a smart in person on Monday, September 12th at 7 p.m. Okay. And so is there like an, can somebody go to your website or how would, how would a person uh, get in touch with you about that? About SMART, um, it'll be on the website for, so it's smartrecovery.org, I believe is their website. And they they have all the in-person meetings. And so that is where you would, you would find the information for the SMART recovery meeting. Okay, great. And then we'll, we'll put your website in the show notes. Are you also on social media or do you have anything else that people can connect with you? Uh, over? Yes. I, I am not on social media. I have very strong feelings against social media. Um, <laughs> and, and so I Wise. try to like uh, practice what I preach. Um, 
And so I do not have a social media presence. I am on LinkedIn. I guess this is the only one where you could find me on LinkedIn. But I'm responsive to emails or texting or calls from my website. Uh, Happy to respond that way. And I think it's you know healthier to just pick up the phone and call someone. And I'd be happy to to chat with someone or send me an email. I think that's the best way to get a hold of me is through a phone call or an email. Perfect. We have three final questions that we ask every guest. And the first one is, if you could put a big post-it note on every parent's refrigerator tomorrow morning, what would this post-it note say? What do you need? Mm, What do What do you, and you capitalized, need? Because, you know, as parents, we're so focused on prioritizing our children's needs and, you know, the needs of the family. But what what do you need? What do you as an individual, not as a parent, not as a spouse, not as a worker, a colleague, a boss, but what do you, the person need right now? Beautiful. And then just to continue to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and to prioritize yourself, you know, especially uh, with uh, mothers, but some, you know, also with, with fathers and parents, um, we see this need to be self-sacrificial and to sacrifice self for the family. That's bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, we well, really, we yeah. really say yeah. more about that real, real quick. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that, you know, we need to take care of ourselves first. Because if I'm doing well, then all my other relationships are going to function better. And it doesn't breed this resentment, right? How many times do we hear people say, well, look at all the things I'm doing for you. You're so ungrateful. Mm. Well, that's control, right? You're trying to control somebody else's uh, emotions based on what you're doing. Versus if I'm doing something out of the fullness where I'm at, right? I'm going to prepare you dinner. I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to you know, do the grocery shopping, but I'm going to do that because I'm, I, I feel taken care of first, right? I had my time. I feel well. And so it doesn't mean that you're going to become a neglective parent. If you put yourself first, it means that you're going to be a fully present parent that is not going to be breeding resentment because your children didn't say thank you for dinner, right? Like no children live in the present and that's how they operate. And they're self-centered because that's how they survive. And that's okay. Perfect. Okay, so the next question, last the last quote that you heard or read that changed the way you think or feel. So I recently read Esther Perel's book, Mating in Captivity, Reconciling the Erotic and the Domestic. Are you familiar with Esther Perel? I am. I am. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I also do couples therapy. And so I'm always interested in reading up on different couples books. And I think Esther is fantastic. But there was a quote in her book um, that I thought was really helpful. Um, It's hard to experience desire when you are weighted down by concern. Mm. Yeah, It's hard to experience desire when you're weighted down by concern. And so when, when we think about us as partners with our partners and feeling that desire and attractiveness and connection that is really difficult to achieve when you're weighted down by all the stressors of life, right? And not putting those healthy boundaries and prioritizing you and your relationship. 
but we wonder like, why am I not attracted to, you know, to my partner or why don't I want to have sex anymore? You're probably super stressed out. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. 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 And so we, we need a, Figure that art. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Just to normalize that part of parenthood, of long-term partnership, long-term relationships. Like, yeah, when 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 you're juggling a million different things and it's really stressful. Yeah, and and then so. Oh my gosh, we can have, you know what? We are going to have you back on to have a whole nother podcast (laughs) just about this topic. It's so rich. (laughs) It is so, and it's so important because, you know, the marriage is what brought the whole family together, right? And so it's really about you and your spouse. And again, our society does not protect that bond. We are child focused in all the things the child needs and all the things the child is involved in. And we neglect the most critical relationship, which is the relationship with our spouse. The final question. Yes. Okay. So we asked this question because, you know, as parents in parenthood, we all know it gets super crazy. It gets super intense. And we uh, can often forget about the wonderful things about kids. And so what do you love most about kids, Ruthie? So I teach Sunday school at my church and I've been involved in children's ministry since I was in my teens. I have always loved children, even before I thought I'd become a parent myself. And I love the energy of children, right? The just their unbridled, uh, full steam ahead energy and their ability to be fully present in the moment, moment by moment. You do not have to tell a child to to breathe and to check in with self. Like they are feeling their feelings and they can go from euphoria to like tears back to euphoria in the span of, you know, 10 minutes and their ability to let things go, right? It's over. I'm done. Like now I'm moving on to this next thing. Okay. Yep. That was difficult, but now I'm over here. And so again, this is a child that's securely attached, right? And that does not have the, the the trauma component. And this is how children should be, right? They should be curious and energetic and moving and exploring and questioning. And that energy, I just love that, that energy of children. Oh, yeah. And if we can just open up to that, slow down, breathe and open up to that, we can. Yes. We need to play as more well. as adults. Yeah, yeah. We need to play more. Right. Yeah. And so that's really the message that a lot of the, 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 the psychologists are putting out there right now and the data showing is as adults, we stop playing. And that is so important. And so I guess, you know, for all the parents out there, just get out there and play. Get out there and play. Oh, Ruthie, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful chat. Uh, I can't wait to have you back on. We're going to talk about the relationship stuff next. (laughs) Okay, that sounds great. We'll have you back for sure. Thank you so much. All right. You're very welcome. Thank you. Hey, if you like what we're doing here at Yes Collective Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Share it with other parents in your life and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yes Collective is a mental health movement for all parents. So let's spread the love.